Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Aaron James. He holds a PhD from Harvard and is professor of philosophy at the University of California, Irvine. Aaron was awarded the Burkhardt Fellowship from the American Council of Learned Societies, spending the 2009 to 10 academic year at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. He's the author of Fairness in Practice, a Social Contract for a Global Economy, the best-selling Assholes, a Theory, Assholes, a Theory for Donald Trump, Surfing with Sartre, and numerous academic articles. And his latest book, co-authored by uh, Robert Hockett, is called Money from Nothing, or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve. Aaron, welcome. It's a, it's a great pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much. Really a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, and I first want to note that uh, the other Aaron, Aaron Simmons, actually recommended Aaron for our podcast. Yeah. And so he gave us the list of things that we could talk about. And it was so interesting because it was so difficult to pick from. Uh, so we'll see where we get today. But I definitely want to start with a conversation on assholes. So uh, so many in our audience know, some don't. So I'm a psychotherapist. I deal with people who would be sometimes considered to be assholes. And so a lot of times in pop culture, when we think of an asshole, we try to label them, right? Not necessarily just an asshole. That's a little bit more colloquial. And people try to become a little bit more clinical about it. So you have these different descriptors, right? So you have something like malignant narcissism, which Trump gets called a lot. You have narcissistic personality disorder, which Trump gets called a lot. Mm -hmm. You have antisocial personality disorder, which Trump gets called a lot. And then you have like some mixture of these things, right? And then maybe other labels that I can't really think of at the moment. So in, in your work, you, you try to differentiate between the different versions. And I think for a, a lot of people, you know, I mean, which is not obviously uncommon. And uh, I guess, you know, uh, I guess I was gonna say ill considered, I guess it's not um, unheard of, right? So it's like when we think of an asshole, we tend to think of it as this one kind of monolith, right? But the way you see it is that there are these distinctions. So now I guess the question is going to be, what are the different types of assholes and why does it even matter? Yeah, so I'll give you the rough, my rough, my first pass, the basic definition of an asshole is, um, it's for us, that's what I think of it as like the proper asshole, someone who's like clearly an asshole, not a half-ass asshole or like an uh, they're going through an asshole phase or, you know, they're a teenager or like a lot of teenagers, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, but they're going to grow out of it They're uh, And so, and they're this, so the way I define that character is it's the guy, it's not only men, but mainly men, the guy who allows himself special advantages in cooperative life out of entrenched sense of entitlement that mm -hmm. immunizes him against the complaints of other people. And then though, so the way I think about it, um, so he's, so for example, um, uh, there's cooperative expectations like a line at a post office, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you can you can make an exception of yourself in that by cutting. And now someone could come up cut with an emergency, and they wouldn't do that with any special incentive or entitlement. Everyone would understand there's an exception if it's a pregnant woman who needs to get to the to send something on their way to the <laughs> deliver a baby, or you know, like you know. Uh, but uh, but the, for the asshole cuts in line, they do it from a sense of entitlement. Um, like because they're rich or they're um, famous or they're beautiful or smarter than these people, their time's more important than anyone else's. Um, and then when someone else complains, like someone's there, hey, buddy, there's a line here, they just disregard the complaint. They don't have time for it, it's sort of beneath them to consider it, you know, met, you know, I don't have. To, so they're entrenched in a sense of entitlement that by which they used to feel entitled to the special advantages of cutting in line cooperative life. And then they're like that systematically across areas of life. It's not just the post office. It's not, it's they're like that at work. They're like that on the road. Not all, not, it don't have to be a complete asshole, like every area of life. Like maybe they're still a good parent or often they're not a good parent. You know, like, but, uh, so, uh, 
but it, you know, it can be context specific. So that's the proper asshole. And then among there's different types of entitlement that give you different types of our asshole styles. Um, like there's old and new, you know, I've got this like typology of different versions that uh, you need to try to fit different public figures in to those different types. Um, but then I, the way I think about it is it can overlap with, it can overlap with forms of antisocial personality disorder. So when you're going to the psychology, so I think what I'm doing there is using sort of moral theory and philosophical tools to define an ordinary concept that we use, like that has a kind of discipline of ordinary usage in 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 like how we talk about people at post offices or originally was World War II soldiers invented the concept, right? But then if you shift to the sort of psycho psychological vocabulary, the clinical de description, they have these set of concepts that are for clinical practice, you know, it's for diagnosing people, helping people, treating people, right? And so then there's other concepts like narcissism or, or, or now a concept that's been revised, a narcissistic personality disorder, like in the diagnostics and DSM manual, that's mm -hmm. gotten smoothed out and put on a spectrum with antisocial personalities or, as I disorder. So like that's not sort of a rigidly or narrowly defined thing. There's this whole spectrum of antisocial personality disorder and they'll put somebody on the spectrum different degrees depending on their, their qualities. But I take it that's sort of a very different kind of purpose. So that can align. So some people who are narcissists or, anti or sociopaths, like on that scale, might definitely be assholes. There's an extreme version that doesn't have moral concepts at all. They don't just partialize use. But I think of assholes as having, they use moral concepts. They do feel morally entitled to things. It's just very partial, you know, um, like they feel entitled to cut in line morally. Like if somebody is... Uh, doesn't appreciate that or they're complaining about it, they're not getting the respect they deserve. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas an extreme form of antisocial personality, the, so, the psychopath, just uh, one form of any way, just doesn't have moral concepts. They they can sort of track the way other people use moral language, but when they say that something's wrong, they're just, it's like they're saying, this is what people call wrong. But to them, the fact that something's wrong is no reason not to do it. Like no reason at all. You know, it's just, it's not like, uh, can I justify this? Um, assholes are more like have this posture of like, it, they have the sense of entitlement that justifies all these things in moral terms or implicitly moral terms um, for, and whatever they could give a story about that. Usually simple stories, you know, like I'm the greatest, I'm the best could be, I'm a winner. <laughs> I don't know. You know, uh, so anyway, that gives you a, a rough, rough sense. So I'm tracking our ordinary usage and then it doesn't map cleanly onto the psychological vocabulary. Um, and I think that's a good thing because uh, you know, like, uh just but you know you can see why there's a lot of overlap in the language interesting so that makes me think uh do you think we actually need assholes in society or uh, because honestly i could see uh, the use to that role right if you deviate from certain social norms yeah. um you you do things other people necessarily wouldn't do in a situation of course it's out of entitlement so it seems like sort of a toxic area for that yeah. behavior to come from but i mean it kind of gets things going yeah, you're more correct, so to speak at least that's what i think of on the surface yeah 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 i think i think that would be true if you thought of somebody who's just an asshole who's like doesn't fully comply isn't a conformist they're a little bit transgressive they break they bend break some rules often for constructive purposes like mm -hmm. an artist you know breaks some norms to for creative to convey a message or do new art um or it could be um um, or there's a, there's a concept in business culture of shits on boards and okay. it's like a contra crotchety contrarian. And they're, they're like the meetings looking for consensus, you know, but then they're like, well, what about this? And they're kind of always doing that. And, and everyone agrees that that person can have a productive, you know, function. They can contribute a lot to the group. 
No, I think they're the what's measured is like is a person like that sort of not nonconformist in a way that contributes to a group's, group's goals or some good contribution. And then I don't think that's an asshole. I think mm -hmm. that's just different kinds of nonconformism that are sort of productive. They're like political dissidents can often have this, you know, role. Sometimes politicians, you know, uh, can as well be, have productive roles like this. So that's not, and that's outside of maybe conventional entitlement, but it's not something they're necessarily, it's not beyond what they're morally entitled to do. Like, People might find them irritated or frustrating because they're not not fully cooperative. But that kind of person, I don't think of them as like entrenched in entitlement. So they won't engage. They won't entertain the complaints of other people. Wow. Um, they have special entitlements that immunize that that give them systematic, you know, uh, takes cis privileges systematically across areas of life. So there's a similarity there. But so I think it's farther along the uncooperative spectrum, as it were, that you get into asshole territory. Um, yeah, and and I love the spectrum of uh, being an asshole or of asshole. So what's so uh, what's so I guess kind of I don't know. It seems so clever to me, and I guess I was gonna say it was so cool because uh, I mean it's sort of very ingenious how they do it. So uh, I tend to think about and uh, write about so the distinction between autism and narcissism. So a lot of times, uh, so not, I mean I just you know to give the audience I guess a little bit of a background here. So a lot of times what uh, narcissistic people do is they use autism as a cover, and then so they think uh, so let's say where people meet somebody. I mean, whatever. I'm just going to fucking call people out. I don't care. So Elon Musk, right? So Elon Musk is highly okay. narcissistic. I don't give a shit, yeah. right? So Kanye West is highly narcissistic, whatever, yeah. right? So you have like this litany of celebrities. And so when you when you actually start, like if they, whatever, publicize this, or if you start talking to them, they'll say, oh, well, the reason why I'm like this is because I'm autistic, right? So the thing is, and the distinction here between narcissism and autism is that, so even though autistic people can be assholes, they're not inherently assholes. So the yeah. way that I would, my understanding or conception of it, the way I would define it is that somebody who is an actual asshole is that they just don't care. They understand what they're doing. But again, because of that sense of entitlement, like, let's say if I hurt your feelings, it's just not important to me. Whereas the yeah. person who's autistic, they have no idea. They don't have a concept of, oh, yeah. I'm hurting this particular person. So I'm wondering, Aaron, if in your work in the distinction and the dimensions of assholes or assholeness, do you yeah. see that as well? Do you see that? Okay. Yes, you can probably, uh, let's say, map autistic people to some extent on that, let's say, uh, on that map or on that dimension. But for the most part, I mean, there is a distinction between somebody who actually does know what they're doing and somebody else who's like, let's say, highly narcissistic, where they're kind of using it as a cover. And then also, do you see that a lot too, where narcissistic people, where they sense that, oh yeah, this person isn't going to prove of my entitlement. So let me now use something else as a cover to pretend that's not really what I'm doing. Yeah, no, I think there, or there's an ordinary language distinction, just someone who's an ass. Yeah. Like they're just dull or dumb or just slow to understanding. Um, and someone can be very intelligent person, like a lot of sophisticated intellectuals are just very entrenched in their ways of thinking about things and they're slow to pick up on other ways of thinking about things. It's a weird hmm. way of being smart, dumb, you know? Um, and then there's the asshole, you know, as I described them. And one way of getting at the difference is a little bit like whether somebody's sort just has autism is like being slow to understanding versus somebody who's it's the difference is like, if something's brought to their attention that they're overlooking, like, even someone who's slow to understanding what might be still open. Oh, well, okay, what is it that I'm not getting? They might even be slow still to catch on even then, not, not get it right away. But they'll like try make an effort. Somebody's bringing something to my attention. What is it I don't understand? Okay, no, I still don't get it, but tell me more. You know, like uh, an asshole is like, why am I going to listen to you? You know, ah, fuck them. You know, sorry, I don't know if you can <laughs> Oh, you know, please, you can curse all you want. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> I have a fan of swearing, obviously. Uh, <laughs> not because you're an yeah. asshole. Yeah, <laughs> so, I think yeah. These, I, I mean, these concepts have very rich meaning. I don't think they're just about venting feelings and stuff. And so, I, I like that's um, rich cognitive structure. 
um, yeah. that you can unpack with philosophical tools. So that that's like a this is like a party to me. <laughs> I swear yeah. to party. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So that's the difference. Uh, do you believe that uh, current societal norms or certain cultural aspects sort of contribute to the development of asshole behavior? Yeah, I think for sure. Uh, this is one thing I have in the book is um, whether there's a certain style of capitalism that is does, is produces assholery, you know, um, because of the structure of the cult incentives and the entitlements and a certain kind of individualism and getting ahead and competitiveness that's characteristic of, say, American style capitalism can be that. I mean, in contrast with more collectivist cultures that are more about like connection with other people and, and community and contribution and especially when there's a richer sense of shame or embarrassment in culture, which is much like then assholes, it's, it's just, it's, it's not just that it's harder to be an asshole or assholes are, or assholery is going to take a much more less blatant form. It's also just harder for people to become assholes. Like that kind of culture just won't be as productive as it were over time. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, um, with so many incentives seemingly in our, our culture toward being an asshole, because like, look, you can get rich, look at all the people getting ahead and doing well, you know, it seems like that seems like the way to go isn't maybe the way of the asshole is better than being a nice guy, you know, and then if my father was an asshole, yeah, I'm already not falling far from the tree anyway, you know, so, uh, you know, maybe a teenage phase, somebody, you know, is considering the options and they just run with, it, you know, I'm like, so there could be a lot of people who are sort of borderline, you know, like they're the borderline assholes um, and they, because of the culture, the incentives of the culture and the allure and the, and the ability to get away with things and be unaccountable um they they just go that way you know and then it pays off and um so the culture the culture or the structure of the culture can definitely uh influence that and these things are often very involved psychologists will study the ways that uh, priming people people's preferences and disposition can be pretty strongly influenced by how they're primed with just like questions or environmental cues and that works true with whether people are, are like primed for um group activities group thinking like talking about we that puts them more in a cooperative footing versus talking about i me mine then that's put in an individualistic like psychologists and experiments can prime and manipulate that kind of changes in behavior like whether or not somebody's disposed to take a cookie or not like or an extra right. cookie if you prime them with i i i they'll take two cookies if you prime them with we mine they'll take one cookie. you know like there's these kinds of these kinds of studies and then basically so you can think of our culture as constantly priming people with with um to sort of go in a more or less cooperative uh direction and that's not just fixed in a culture it changes over time with periods and who's prominent in media or politics or what's sort of the in the zeitgeist yeah and what's so interesting about that like i feel like my mind at this point is going in so many different directions uh first of all i want to shout out christian miller because he does a lot of great research on honesty and uh dishonest behavior including yeah. cheating which i really love uh, yeah i'm sure you know christian yeah so shout out yeah. to him i mean because he, he uh he's a fan of the show and he's been on multiple times but then also i wanted to say what's so interesting about these studies is they don't seem at least from my kind of vague understanding of it is they don't really seem to touch the actual narcissist so and i wanted to add as you were talking about capitalistic culture because on the one hand yes they pursue it and they pursue well they pursue wealth they're very kind of in tune with it but on the other hand they also want to be well liked so you actually then you have somebody like an elon musk or a kanye west where they say on the one hand where they're like yeah well i mean listen i'm really successful you shouldn't hate me for it i'm just really hard working etc but then on the other hand they're like oh but i'm also autistic so you're like wait i don't get it are you a nice guy are you an asshole what's your defense here because on the one hand you're <laughs> saying well yes i'm an asshole because i have to be but on the other guy you're saying well no no i'm just autistic so i really it's not that i don't care i'm not that bad you know i 
I actually am really a nice guy. If I, if you really kind of tell me what's wrong and I'll, you know, I'll try to fix it or whatever. I'll try to fix these things. And so I think the issue here is that like, and this is, you know, the core of narcissism is they don't really care necessarily who they are in the world. They care about what you think about them. And so because they don't care about who they are in the world, they try to appeal to society as broadly as possible. So again, you have these things where on the one hand they could say, yes, I'm an asshole when I need to be, but I'm also really nice when I need to be too. But that's actually not true. So do you find that when you're studying, uh, let's say assholes, narcissism more specifically, that essentially what these people try to do is they try to get away with as much as they can. And as fu fundamentally, I mean, they look for as many covers as possible because ultimately, I mean, the rules, as long as they apply to other people, they're great, but they, if they don't apply to them even better. Yeah. So I think that's getting, everything you're saying is really getting at the narcissistic asshole. So somebody whose sense of entitlement really is informed by narcissistic traits and including extreme preoccupation with how they appear in the eyes of others and wanting to be liked and catering to that and pandering to that. Um, but I mean, other assholes maybe are smug, the smug asshole, for example, just sort of maybe has con contempt for people beneath them, doesn't care what they think about, doesn't trying to, like may have this few group of elite peers who they care about, could be something fairly esoteric. Why, why would I care about what the public thinks? You know, all that matters is this could be a famous scientist or philosopher or ballet person, you know, or artist, you know, like that, that person can be like a proper asshole because um, they just feel entitled. They feel special. They feel more, you know, they, um, they don't, they really believe that they're above others in some sense that others, we're not all equals, but they just happen to be good at certain things, you know, mm -hmm. um, but they're just not preoccupied with their image or their, their self-concept, you know, how they appear being liked. They just don't cater to that. Mm -hmm. So like, but when you have, when you describe someone who is an asshole, but then is also um, just extremely vain and catering and, needy you know to get <laughs> get attention then that that sort of brings out the way in which their assholery flows from from these more narcissistic qualities um, and so you definitely need that i think to understand certain kinds of assholes in the culture just so just to make them make their way of being intelligible yeah that's interesting i actually didn't know there's such a thing as a needy asshole you would think that that kind of person would be a, like a people pleaser in a way right uh, again also on the surface yeah yeah, like uh, that's that's the thought I have. Yeah, when I when I think of someone like that, at least, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, also you know who comes to mind? Who also doesn't uh, probably care about public opinion? Mm. Is an asshole. Mm. Uh, so, uh, Aaron, I don't know if you know this guy, but Vince McMahon. Oh wow, that's yeah. interesting. I love how we're getting into. <laughs> I don't know why now. that just clicked. Yeah, yeah. So apparently, uh, so what happened in the news recently? Oh, so wait, Aaron, do you know anything about professional wrestling at all? Oh, no, not really. Okay, so Vince McMahon is an interesting, I would say, character study. So Vince is, um, so what, oh, here's what's interesting about him. So he plays an asshole on TV, has always done that. And I mean, he's like the boss, right? And so the character with him, the Mr. McMahon character with, uh, that was feuding with Stone Cold Steve Austin in the late 90s, uh, he was like a really big piece of shit, right? But everybody behind the scenes, or at least, I don't know, whatever, people, at least some people, I don't want to say everybody. Some people would say, well, you know, Vince is not really like that. He's a really nice guy. He does a lot of charitable work, whatever, right? So now it comes out in the news that he's pretty much at least been accused of sex trafficking and so this person put out their tax etc whatever right so with Vince McMahon I mean he's an interesting person because on the one hand and maybe this is what we should get into so on the one hand he has done a lot of good I mean this is a person who supported a lot of careers so the people who are closest to him like oh, definitely the top wrestlers but also even the people beneath them they've pretty much said they said you know without Vince McMahon I, I don't know where I would be right uh, so I would probably be in jail or something or at the very least I'd be at the bottom rungs of the wrestling industry I'd be doing what 
so I don't want to get into too much uh, technical terminology here. I'll try to explain it as best as I can. So they would say something like, I don't want to be doing house shows. So house shows are like these little independent uh, circuits where you're essentially performing probably in front of maybe like 100 or 200 people. So yeah, so the question here would be, do you find that a lot of times with assholes, what you have is this facade where on the one hand, it's like they kind of, again, you know, we sort of what we were talking about a little bit before or a little bit close to what we were talking about before, where you have this kind of dual role where on the one hand, you kind of get the sense that they're an asshole, but then it's like they kind of peel back or kind of pull back rather. And they say something, well, you know, like that's just kind of a character, right? Behind the scenes, I'm actually a nice guy. And then you go even deeper than that. And you're like, oh shit, he's actually not even a nice guy. Cause that's what we're <laughs> actually seeing with Vince McMahon. It went from, okay, here's the character. Then here's who I really am. And then, oh no, he really is the character. And you're like blown away. And it's hard to even talk about this. Cause it's like such complexity of layer. But do you actually sometimes see that with assholes where you kind of can't even get a sense of who they really are? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that many of them play on that and 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 often have well, one, the first thing is that for someone to really succeed as an asshole, it's 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 a difficult thing to do. It takes a lot of skill and they often have to have redeeming qualities mm -hmm. that make them likable or attractive or interesting or, or mm -hmm. sometimes just charming. And so oftentimes friends of an asshole, like they really are an asshole, but they'll you go talk to the friend. And they're like, I agree, he's an asshole, but he's he's fine to me and he's my friend, you know, so so they're not going to disassociate with them. And that's I think that's OK. Thing to do i've done that with assholes people i've initially resolved to have nothing to do with them but then they're, they're nice to me and eventually it's more difficult to like, <laughs> disassociate than just to chat have nice chats or whatever you know like but it doesn't mean they're not an asshole i mean another case is that um you know there's a it's a cover they really are an asshole and they're maybe being an asshole to you and they're papering over that that's more of the like superficial charm so manipulative thing but a, a different case which uh which uh which might come up um is that's really important for, especially in politics and big world affairs type stuff. If somebody is properly an asshole, they really are, but they they don't just have redeeming qualities, but they sort of accidentally do a lot of good. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, someone could support them or think they're a force for good and then forgive them. It's not that they don't morally object to their being an asshole, they're willing to forgive it or overlook it because it's like on balance, they're doing more, they're doing a lot of good, you know, they're, um, um, and now like, uh, you could think about Steve Jobs is a good example of that he's probably an asshole parked in handicapped spaces, you know, is like maybe an asshole boss, you know, also inspired Bernie guy. Sanders, Bernie Sanders. too. Yeah. So, but like, I mean, I like my, you know, I mean, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like I don't get really upset about Steve Jobs because he's such an asshole, you know, cause you know, okay. Um, um, and you know, some other politicians or Bernie Sanders, you know, you can see his manner, but then if you think, you know, if you're aligned with Paul and then, so, and then likewise, this is similar to like why Trump could have so much for support, even among people who aren't assholes and are generally decent people. Um, they can think, you know, well, okay, the system is, you know, I don't know, corrupt or terrible, needs massive reform. And they buy into the idea that only someone, like only a strong leader can fix it. And then what we need now is a, an asshole. And then they think that Trump's way of being an asshole, you know, of just destroying social norms and um, um, destabilizing um, politics that that's going to be that's going to have good outcomes you know i mean maybe pack the court or whatever conservatism reverse for every way that was the previous thinking but um and now it's a different things now restoring you know um, maybe a different group of people have the appeal you know restoring or protecting or preventing you know dispossession from you know the right, people right. who are traditionally at the center of sort of uh american politics and culture I and mean, especially you know uh, white people um but um so that's that's kind of if you think that's a really good thing, you can think that, you know, he's this for, he's this wrecking ball. That's what we need right now. And you can sort of forgive the fact that he's an asshole. 
I mean, I don't think that's there's a certain amount of supporters for Trump like that. But I think a lot of supporters aren't aren't even like that. They're just it's a different kind of thing the way uh, as well. We could get into that if you wanted to. But just to answer your question, um, there are these there's this different case where people will forgive it. And, you know, and everyone does to some degree is willing to forgive a certain amount of assholes to do like I mean, other assholes are just not a force for good at all. And they're just a, a disaster. Yeah. Um, and they just need to be stopped, and it's and it's and it's a terrible thing that other people will support them or whatever. That's my own view of Trump, you know. Like for myself, I don't forgive any of the asshole, you know. Like, uh, but uh, but yeah, yeah. But in other cases, you know, I don't I don't do that. So it's um, yeah. what, what's what, what's so interesting about that going back to Vince McMahon and now even comparing it to Donald Trump. So for people within that sphere, I mean, obviously the three of us are not in it, uh, but for people in that sphere, oftentimes when you do present counter evidence to what Trump is or who he really is, it's often hard for them to see because he think, they think he's done so much for them. I mean, the thing with Trump is that for the people that he seems to at least feel superior to, and maybe even just people he finds somewhat close, I don't really, I mean, I don't know him, right? But from what we see is that he's not a bad guy to everybody. I mean, even with Rogan, right? So Rogan's like, hey, you know, he came up to me, you know, he's really nice. He's like, hey, I really enjoy your show, whatever, right? So the thing is, and going back again to that, uh, let's say, what would you call it? That um, with... Um Oh my God, what would you call it? Not, I was going to say caricature, not a caricature. That uh, that template, right? That sort of template of the Vince McMahon, where the people that he surrounds himself with, just like a Bernie Sanders or whomever, oftentimes they don't know who he really is because, yeah, they do do things for people. And so when you get somebody like Trump and, you know, you and I, and obviously with Alan, we were talking about religion before the podcast started. So we were talking about the fact that, let's say, somebody could be messianic in some sort of way. And then on the other hand, be, you know, highly corruptible or already inherently corrupt. So now as we get into the conversation, about meaning, about kind of religion, whether, you know, messiahs can't be pure, whether it's all sort of just like, you know, populism and, and uh, you know, there was, I, I'm thinking there's this really great quote from William Blake where he says, the iron hand that crushed, no, I'm sorry, the, what was it? It was, um, the fist that no the the hand that crushed the tyrant became a tyrant in its stead something mm -hmm. along those lines yeah so it's like the iron fist that crushed the tyrant became a tyrant in its stead and so now the question is is it possible for a person to be sort of messianic to be a Vince McMahon a Donald Trump whatever and for them not to be inherently corrupt because the way that we think about it and the way that we see uh you know the way that we think about needing to be saved or the way that we think about just like who people are for us and you know again our own kind of inherent need to have a protector or a father figure i wonder if that sort of um if that can kind of be in line with what we see in, in the current reality so really the question is to chalk it up to anything is can there be somebody who is a donald trump like figure who is a messianic like figure who's not inherently like donald trump or a vince mcmahon or whomever who where let's say you have this outsider like for us it's easy because we're not trump supporters it's easy to see for us to look at it on the outside and say oh you know these poor people how could they have fallen for that like of course he's going to treat them well why wouldn't he he needs a public he needs he needs followers right he needs disciples. So my question is, in your kind of understanding and in your research, have you ever seen the case where somebody maybe appears to be an asshole, but legitimately, I mean, let's say they have followers and they're really good to them and beyond the behind the scenes, uh, let's say, you know, they really are somewhat, maybe not Christ-like, but they really are, uh, let's say, more, more of a humanitarian than it appears. Or do you find that in your work is that when you do see somebody like a Donald Trump or Vince McMahon or whatever, like this is just how it is. You can't have a messianic figure who, again, isn't inherently corrupt. Yeah, I mean that's a really that's a really great question. I mean, um, a lot to say about. It. I mean, offhand, I think it's oftentimes great leaders, you know, do have like a kind of somewhat delusional messiah mm -hmm. complex, you know, and they're mm -hmm. but they're but they're when they're matched to the moment, you know, they they'll sort of organize and align people 
you know, in a way that can be really good and productive, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, think about just, just take the idea of like thinking I should run for president. You know? Right. I mean, it's like, and then like, I'm the person for the moment, I'm the one, or as like Obama was called, you know, like, and Obama's like, I think he's a decent, good person, but then he also has this, it's almost, it's borders, I don't know if he's a narcissism, but, but it borders on like, I'm the one for the moment, yep. you know, it's like, uh, and, and maybe he was, you know, because it, it, it definitely, it, it really felt that way to a lot of people, and I think so, I think someone can be a good person, but still play into a kind of dynamic that, you know, you're talking about, well, political dynamic that can elevate somebody as, the, to this sort of like quasi godlike, you know, kind of uh, figure. Now, I mean, if if the person is well grounded, they're going to think, you know, like, oh, I know, this is just, you know, <laughs> this is just like a very circumstantial thing, you know, and uh, like everybody has their fifteen minutes of fame, you know, kind of was, uh, you know, um, what's his name's um, the artist? Um, oh, forgetting his name, the artist, rapper. Yeah. Was that R rapper, rocker? What's the genre? no artist? Uh, not oh, the painter. Yeah, the painter. Yeah, sorry, oh. it doesn't matter. Fifteen minutes. Yeah. Of <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like there's a way of saying, think of it as a kind of egalitarian thing. So I think that can be, you know, and, and sort of they're give they're they're given privilege. They're called to a certain kind of privilege, a certain way of being treated as special, mm -hmm. and they can step up to that well, from a sense of responsibility of an idea that they can have a productive, constructive role. They're, they are okay. I'm called to this moment, and I'll do my part. But if they the 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 sort of well-grounded person is going to keep some sense of like, you know, modesty or humility or measure about it, even if they play into the script that's being offered to them, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, uh, so I think that that's a thing and that can happen with great, great leaders. I mean, it's also very common for great leaders to sort of lose sight of that and, and veer off, you know, uh, veer off into, you know, drink the, drink the Kool-Aid or whatever, right. you know, so the temptations there of power and are just really strong. Certain people can, can survive them. Um, um, uh, anyway, yeah, that, is that enough of an answer? Yeah, I definitely think that's a possibility. But then certain kinds of assholes that are, or it's not just assholes, but other figures are sort of trying to play up, sort of create that for their own purposes of power and privilege. And I think that's Trump-like figure. Although the dynamics that are among people who support him are very much more, are, are not just like being taken by a con, you know, um, I mean, it's, I mean, he's really tapping into a, a real sense of, meaning and belonging and a sense of the, the sublime, um, a sense of, you know, connection to the world, progress, a sense of being right, you know, righting wrongs and stuff. I think, you know, he is their Messiah figure because he's really tapping into their sense of dispossession and, um, and, and justice and righting wrongs and stuff like that. So he's catering to that and, and is incredibly charismatic from their point of view. I mean, I look at it from a point of view of like, you know, um, what a republic requires you know and i see revulsion but you know but, but but to them you know you know you have to i think you have to really to get in the sense of the, his incredible charisma for them is really real i mean he's a wizard at sort of at, at enacting it um and uh but to them it's it's not just they're just being duped you know it's a sense of belonging a sense of uh, a sense of the sublime a sense of righteousness um uh, a sense of the meaning of the story of their place, like of making America great again. If America was, you know, there were this halcyon days, you know, which there was a lot to, it's to, to about that era, you know, um, a lot of ways that it was better than the past for all its flaws. You know, there's ways it was massively improved compared to like the pre-war era, for example, America, um, including along racial and gender lines, despite all the limitations of the age, you know, the, um, um, uh, uh, 
but so like the idea that there's something's lost or got away. I mean, every, a lot of people can have, feel that way. So there's that there's there's a lot more to the sense of me tapping into sense of meaning of a kind that that is a function that that religious faith often feels or spirituality often feels fulfills for people. And he's managed to tap into that very skillfully. So that's a real part of his charisma. I don't think it's just a narrow, narrowly political calculation or even a, even a, a calculation like, you know, yeah, he's an asshole, but there's this good he can do. That's an, or maybe an earlier version of his support. But now for a lot of it, it's this more spiritualistic. You put it in terms of a messiah. I think that's, that is a, a good way to, to think about his appeal, his charisma to people who just want, who suspended all judgment against him, suspended the moral categories, expectations of truth, standard expectations in a republic like we're a country of laws you know <laughs> you know it's laws before men and accountability a lot of that's out the window or suspended or whatever um in this sort of submissive role to the sense of the sublime you know the sublimity of the movement and the sense of belonging you know and then the fun of it you know they're just a lot, of, a lot of times they're having a great time you know um just playing with it being playful and comedic you know and um trump's also has a lot of comedic skill you know as part of his yeah. charisma it's being transgressive in a comedic way um to, like to people is just totally um like yeah to win them over yeah. and engaging and mm -hmm. yeah yeah and you know uh, just to shift gears a little bit but it, also in your book you talk about strategies for you know how to deal with an asshole um could you share maybe one particular effective strategy yeah, the one in the personal life is just avoid them at, at, at really high cost. Avoid them if you can. <laughs> like, I mean, and this that's like not a trivial thing because it might mean dropping a profitable business deal with someone who's an asshole. It means like definitely not marrying an asshole, but divorcing them yeah. if you're already married to them. You know, mm -hmm. if you're dating them, they're really sure they're an asshole. Not just like the relationship didn't work out and now you call them an asshole. Like that's not that. Like you're in the relationship. There's a lot of reasons to stay in, but and you rethink. I think he's an asshole and then you just have to go okay like nothing you justify this you know so or even like your employer you know and there's an asshole employee who's really productive brings a lot of money for the business you know but then there but then there's the not counting the cost to all the employees the work environment their productivity and stuff like there's the thought there is it's it's not worth it, it like the cost to everyone else doesn't make sense even if you've got like a good income you know from this productive worker you should still let them go so mm -hmm. like the no asshole rule basically as bob sutton puts it in his business manager book i think is the first rule of of asshole fight club or whatever <laughs> <laughs> no i could i could totally get behind that uh there was somebody in my life a uh, very angry person very very angry like a, a hair trigger just super reactive yeah. would just go to untold heights of just even just yelling in conversation yeah. And yeah, uh, I cut them off. My life has been improved dramatically. And yeah. that, that was somebody who I was talking with like very often. And then that not being like a factor in my life feels like uh, mm -hmm. like those mental resources that I would use, you know, either getting into a heated argument with them or just even just conversing with them. It, it feels way better to not have to deal with a person like that yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then so you, I'm sorry, did you, did you want to say something? 
Oh, I was, no, go ahead. Yeah. Well, so, cause I want to connect this, right? So, and you know, we're going now, we're just going back and shifting back into politics. So here's another question that I would have. So if that's the case, right, if we were to stay away from these people who are assholes, right? And I mean, maybe you were, maybe you disagree with what I'm about to say. Uh, but so, I mean, psychologists would some, would often, I, I don't know, whatever, I guess it depends on who you're asking, but psychologists would often say, well, anybody in politics probably has narcissistic personality disorder. So you'll have somebody like an Obama that yes, he might not have antisocial personality disorder, meaning he's not a psychopath like Trump. But I mean, again, it's really hard to distinguish between narcissism, like we were talking about before, narcissism and uh, psychopathy, right? So with that being said, how do we then stay away from people, uh, let's say, who are assholes, when let's say we do need people in positions of power, we do need people on those kind of, uh, not the front line necessarily, I guess that's not a great metaphor, but people sort of in the front, you know, kind of leading the pack in some ways. Because I mean, it's kind of hard to know, right? Whether it's power that corrupts, as you know, as the kind of trope goes, or whether, you know, the people who are already in power are necessarily corrupt corruptible or corrupt. So how do we stay away from people if we were to agree? And obviously, Aaron, you could disagree. If we were to agree with the premise that yes, mostly everybody, if not everybody in high positions of power, either have narcissistic personality disorder or high degrees of narcissism, then what the hell do we do? Yeah, no, I think that's it's, it's true. And that's a problem. But I mean, I think, I mean, you need to have really aggressive filtering for you know, and accountability and checks and balances, et cetera, on who can rise to power and the, and what power they can exercise with that. I mean, this is basically the framers idea and, um, you know, that it's not working very well right now. I mean, and so like, I mean, the basic structure of the, the, the approach works, but what's been undermined, I think, is that a key component of that was the way, the way that parties filtered candidates to just rule out this sort of extreme case sort of sort of draw on the people that are maybe have some degree of narcissism they're willing to be a little bit transgressive push rules you know that are but still signal signal productive aims they still they're still signal loyalty to the republic you know like a broad 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 goals that everyone that everyone shares they're at least catering rhetorically to those things and to some degree being restrained by these basic norms that are sort of are broadly part of a republic republic of equals you know Mm -hmm. um and then but then you know there's other cases where it's it really just is a sham or it's really just a it's just a rhetorical ploy and they really aren't restrained by things it's all it's all a, a power and um no. influence and further status and i mean so you need you need like a lot of levels to for screening out both not just what power can be exercised once once you're there but who who gets into these positions it used to be the parties had a much bigger role in filtering these things Mm -hmm. But the wheels came off the wagon on that. Um, um, right, I mean, but, on the right, but um, but despite well, efforts to do it, but um, you know, and that and then there's there's you can speculate about why that happens, and I mean, I think economics has a lot to do with it, and changes in the media environment have a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that's a bigger story, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because you know, in uh, in ancient Roman politics, I mean, you know, there's this famous story. I forget his name now. Oh my God, I used to actually know it. Uh, so where the person, you know, this farmer, he essentially realizes, oh, Rome is about to be at war. I need to, you know, hold. I need to give my farm up to my partner for whatever amount of time, and I need to go lead. And then after I'm done leading, the war is over. Then I can go back to my life, right? That's not what we really see with politicians. I mean, people are career politicians, and one could argue that one has to probably be highly narcissistic in order to pursue politics as a career because we don't have that, right? We don't have 
have like your regular citizen like alan can't wake up tomorrow and say you know what guys like do you want me to go uh lead you and whatever right do you want me to i become... could do that right i could do that <laughs> do you want me to become the mayor tomorrow right so that yeah. doesn't happen right so everybody that we know uh, and i mean politicians that like i think we've even known personally we were fairly disappointed by um so with that being said uh, right yeah right <laughs> so with that with that being said i mean i just wonder how is it possible then again if we are to stay away from assholes how is it that we can elect people in power that li li aren't right especially when politics is a career i just i don't know man i haven't i don't think that this is like a i mean maybe i'm wrong right but i don't i wonder i guess if this is a resolvable issue because again it seems like the only people that are drawn to those degrees of power are people who are either high level assholes or again people who are malignant narcissists yeah no i mean it's a real problem but i don't think this is that's not a new problem i mean yeah. obviously this is a constant like how to rein in abuse of power i mean you know the basic ideas of a constitutional republic are really founded on limiting the vectors of power filtering who can get in i mean i think all of that is 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 good and right and um and it's never there's never one thing that does it right it's always a mix of things and, and um but one thing that's that's maybe not as obvious because it's not a sort of structured institutional thing is like a, the, the political culture is a kind of more informal and maybe flowing sort of thing can really matter a lot for whether or not there's appeal for the more the more abusive kinds of political figure, figures or what 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 even somebody who's still calculating self-interest what's gonna, they're going to see as rewarding them or not mm -hmm. you know um, and that the changes in the political culture well I mean like and now there's lots of bigger structural changes that happen both economic and media reasons but that I should mention here that American political culture was actively destabilized by asshole political entrepreneurs. And you can I'll almost pin this point this to like Newt Gingrich. Wow. There's their previous people in the culture. I mean, even Richard Nixon wasn't proper asshole, but you know, like in various res respects, but um but but to sort of systematically just undermine the forms of political comedy and cooperate comedy and not comedy. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> Nowadays it's all comedy, you know, like uh, but uh cooperation, you know, and to, to sort of make things rigidly partisan and make, you know, cooperation impossible and friendship, even political friendship across the aisle, like saying, this is an active project by um, Newt Gingrich at one, at one point as a gambit for power, both his own self-aggrandizement, but also entrenching um, or gaining power for, for his party. Um, and now he himself says he concocts big rationalizations for this, but it's classic asshole. I remember when I was writing the book, I thought he was an asshole. And I, it took me about three minutes of Googling around to find a quote from him right out of his mouth where he basically like, that perfectly fits the theory. Like it's something like, I've always been able to come up with, um, make up a story larger than myself to rationalize whatever I'm doing at the time. <laughs> so wow. that's the the story. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Uh, uh, so, I mean, there are other people that are like, have these destabilizing, roles in politics before that but i think i think he really um it turns out had a really kind of decisive influence um in creating trends that then accelerated in our in our culture that we're now that we're out reckoning with and basically it was downstream from that that basically trump saw an opening and that the ability to given the new social media environment his ability to his narcissism and his ability to understand the incredible superficiality of it all put him like way ahead of the curve for everybody else on that, you know, um, um, and to exploit that and that, but that was sort of exploiting sort of these cracks in the, in the culture and the structure of things that had already really been, that emerged and been actively sown and created. And um, so um, I think there's, it's a mix of deeper structural problems that, 
but then a lot of times it's just they get exploited for political advantage and there's that's that's not so much about how you stop people who are in office but you know it's um i mean that i don't know there's no there's no firm answer for how that how that works what what restrains people i mean you just still there's no way for a republic to survive without a preponderance of citizens who really are committed to its basic norms and principles and they're willing to both restrain their own appetites and ambitions but then coordinate with others to restrain the appetites and ambitions of people who are you know not just transgressive or not just pushing boundaries but like really are just fundamentally at odds with the with the common good i mean there's just that's just what it takes like there's no way we last there's no way this keeps going there's no way the an experiment with a republic which is like you know it's a relatively recent experiment and tried in Rome, you know, like for example, tried another place or, or Venice and other, right. you know, places, but, you know, still a couple hundred years old for, for modern times. Right. Um, it's not the dominant form of political organization in world, in, you know, world, world history. Um, and so like, there's a question of how, whether it'll last, you know, like how, what it takes to keep it. And that's a contingent fact that there's just enough people who are willing to uphold it. Um, not despite changing circumstances, despite changing political fortunes, despite changing economies and stuff like that. Um, right. It's not inherently self-sustaining. I mean, it does require just um, underlying new each generation coming in and, you know, to find the basis for uh, for supporting and upholding its institutions. Um, right. And would you yeah. say that that sometimes there's a kind of, oh, I seeming at least there's a contrast between a sense of or a desire for purpose and meaning and then one for security and safety? Because what I see with the populace, uh, more so with the Trump supporters, obviously, right, is that the populace hates like these sort of middle of the road politicians, right? So with somebody like a Hillary Clinton, so she's, I mean, I get it that she's wealthy, et cetera, but in terms of her just charisma, her personality, she's kind of an average person, right? Yes, yeah, she's highly intelligent, but ultimately like what she has to offer, let's say in a speech, she's not, she's not Julius Caesar, right? So with that being said, I wonder if the populace really struggles between choosing what they actually want. Because if they have safety, it feels like their lives are kind of aimless, boring, there's no enemy, there's no one to oppose. And then obviously, if they have meaning, I mean, then there's kind of no stability. But it sort of seems like at least with the Trump supporters, they don't, I mean, even though they might say that, hey, you know, we're doing this because we want stability, we want jobs, whatever, that ultimately what they want is they want meaning. And in that meaning, they want enemies. And somebody like Trump, this messianic figure sort of gives it to them on a silver platter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think the meaning point is really, really important. I mean, there's a, well, one way to put it is there's a certain kind of secularized liberal politics that puts a lot of focus on morality or basic forms of morality, but marginalizes meaning, I mean, which maybe gets us associated with leaving religion, you know, like religious tolerance of diverse religious groups and religious freedom means there's lots of, but you don't mix it with public. Uh, now, I mean, I agree with the basic structure of that, but I don't think, I think it's a mistake to think that, that, um, that politics shouldn't or can't be about meaning. I mean, there's lots of forms of it that really have to be. And one way of doing it is just our common republic, our common project, our problem. You know, there's what, stories like, you know, arc of history bending towards justice. Right, there's, right. you know, perfecting our union. These kinds of stories that are baked into like American political DNA, that kind of storytelling is a way of having common meaning that brings its own sublimity and sense of belonging and connection and, and that kind of stuff, I mean, is really part and parcel of what makes like even a republic last, function and last to sort of restore support. And with that sort of in decline, because distrust on the rise, trust in decline, there's then alternative story. I mean, meanings I think of as just the story that the stories that are getting told. I mean, things can have a real meaning if it's the best story, but people think have right. different views about what's the best story. 
Wait, right, can, I, can, so, can, I, can, I, can I just add to that, please? You're yeah. right. So w when you're saying that, what I'm thinking is somebody thinking of the best story, what we tend to think about it is in terms of a story of good versus evil. So that's what I'm now wondering as you're talking. You're saying, hey, you know, we could kind of create this narrative where we're all together, right? Where we're all creating this uh, harmonious republic. I'm wondering if people can handle that. I'm wondering if in terms of the way that most people or many, whatever, I don't want to say most, many people see meaning is that it is this battle of good versus evil, which Trump plays on, obviously, you know, the Christ-like figure, uh, you know, he has Jesus behind them and like these fucking stupid memes. So I wonder if people can handle the harmony narrative where we are actually kind of working to create a better world, whereas opposed to like black and white thinking, it seems to be uh, like, you know, people like love drama or melodrama even. It seems to be much more enticing. Well, I mean, the, the sort of very old, you know, human dynamics for in-group, out-group behavior, you know, as part of, you know, early tribes, early, like very, even prehistory is like mm -hmm. just basic survival, you know, small bands of groups. It's like, you know, distrust of the other. I mean, maybe this is very circumstantial, but this in-group, out-group dynamics are pretty, you know, that already comes with an idea that there's meaning in banding together against another, against a, an outside a, a outside threat. And a lot of pathologies of contemporary culture and the stories that are appealed, like, tie back to that kind of thing a lot of things that you might think are more progressive narratives focus on more inclusion and you know everybody mattering the idea of a republic you know everybody is a citizen that's that you know it took like millennia to establish as a norm you know like even the basic idea of rights as you know citizen basic norms of republic so that people are included based just on that association but then it's often been the case even when like in relatively recent political history that our ability to stay united in our sort of our own republic involves reference to a common enemy. And so that's there's all there's a kind of constant battle for which story is going to work. Now, sometimes that gets harnessed for progressive like progress at home, the foreign enemy. And sometimes it's an exaggerated threat as well. And then sort of later progress has to sort of tamp that down. Um, there's a constant then temptation politically for somebody to rise to power based on creating a threat of a sense of threat. Uh, by outsiders. I mean, a, a recent thing to put in this framework within American story is that for the right, at least, it's not just foreign threats that are united. It's they, that the, the threat is like liberals, the other, the other side, like, and now, or even like it's Nikki Haley supporters or whatever, or Trump, you know, like the rhinos and, you know, so the, it's these othering, you know, it's kind of internalized. Um, and that's a very dangerous situation, but it was already, it's already dangerous in world affairs, like, you know, was making a foreign other, which were then more prone to go to war with or hostile mm -hmm. relations in a totally unnecessary way. Um, but so this is a long, a long struggle. And I don't think that the, the bigger, better meaning stories can't just act like these dynamics aren't real or that status contests and scarcity aren't real dynamics. They need to find a way of telling a story such that we can, you know, moderate those stories and navigate and create, relations on a more cooperative footing you know um and there's an art to that and it ha and it, it depends on the context and the situation at the moment and but it and it does have to have some bigger soaring ideas about possibility and you know futures we can hope for and world we can all belong to and that kind of stuff made not totally soggy rhetoric but you know in sort of concrete forms of comp cooperation evolving you know uh, by sort of values that people can in principle like you know um support but the the meaning part is weaving it all in a bigger story that makes sense of a moment and connects us to you know our past and present and the a bigger story a lot of politics is about those dueling narratives those dueling stories and i think that's not just a matter of like getting votes or mobilizing voters or stuff like that that that's really is part and parcel of just making a political community last the meaning is really part and parcel of organizing people on the scale that ha they have to be organized for uh 
you know, large political communities to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, that's so fascinating, by the way, because then it's just a matter of creativity, right? Like what kind of narrative are you creating? Because mm. you, you pose the question, like, can the public handle a sort of a, a harmonious, mm-hmm. you know, a narrative, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe if if it was framed the right way, you could still do good versus evil, and then still have that as the as the foundation uh, harmony. Maybe you could just kind of scapegoat, uh, maybe some again some sort of behavior as as being you know the bad guy or yeah. something like that. It, again, it re- requires intense creativity. But... I I want to actually give you guys now an example. Um, so Aaron, have you ever read the book Waiting for Barbar for the Barbarians by J M Coetzee? Oh no. Oh, oh, okay. Such a great story. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of the synopsis here. So there's also a great movie with Johnny Depp in it too. Uh, I think it came out about, I think during the pandemic in 2020, actually perfect, uh, perfect cover of the book. Okay. So in this book, right, the, the barbarians. So who are the barbarians? First of all, there's an empire, right? So in this empire at the outskirts of it is I, I've now, I forgot the name. Uh, oh my God. What was the name? So, oh my God. So the Johnny Depp character plays, um, the Colonel and I forgot who the main character's name was. Shit, whatever. So essentially <laughs> what happens the outskirts of this empire so you have uh, a lot of boredom right so people are kind of aimless they don't really know what to do i'm gonna really butcher this book because i read it in college so people are so people are kind of like bored right so you have this vast empire kind of resembling rome at the time and so these people are essentially just kind of aimless right and then so what happens is you have uh people like you have like these barbarians living on the outskirts of the town and then so fundamentally what happens from my vague memory of it somebody comes back and they say hey you know there are these barbarians outside i'm not really sure what their thing is uh it's kind of weird i don't know if like they're trying to conquer us or they're trying to take over start a war whatever right so people at first like ah probably nothing right and then like little by little this person kind of keeps coming back something like that and then they start taking him or her yeah i think it was him so they start taking him more and more seriously and then at some point what happens is they end up capturing some of these people and then they capture them and they decide to kill them and they're like oh let's send the message to the others like don't you dare mess with the empire right and then so fundamentally what happens is the message gets back to the other people and then the barbarians are like what the hell is going on why are these people people killing our people and then so obviously as the story goes the war kind of there's a war that ignites and then this the person who's the colonel the johnny depp character he ends up coming down and he's like hey we need to kill them all right and then so the ma- oh it was the magistrate that's who it was so the magistrate says no we can't kill these people this doesn't make any sense they haven't done anything to us and the colonel and by the way jm quetzi hated george bush at the time uh, i think even though the book was written in the 80s like it kind of resurfaced in its popularity during the bush era so he was pretty much making the case between this and afghanistan and then so he was so the colonel says, you know, he's like, oh, you're weak. You know, this is why I'm here. I'm here to take over, etc. And then so everybody bands behind the colonels. And essentially, there's this full on war with these barbarians. And it's like this tiny tribe of people. They don't understand why they're being killed. They don't really speak their language. Uh, they bring them in. And so essentially, they say the reason why they're not communicating with us is because they're hiding the truth, you know, very kind of post 9-11 ish. Right. And then so what happens is, is that like, fundamentally, I don't remember exactly how the how the ending was, but I think fundamentally, they wipe out this entire tribe. And then they kind of start all over. They're like, okay, like, what do we do now? So I think from my understanding, the message that Kohetsi had was that like mankind or humanity can't handle too much downtime. So even though things, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though things feel so secure, like, so don't get me wrong. I don't think that they consciously were like, hey, let's go find an enemy. But I think our inherent paranoia can deal with the fact that here's this, let's say, as you would say, this Republic kind of working together, working harmoniously, working on this bigger narrative. So Kohetsi, 
Fancy might argue that, hey, you know, maybe he's saying, hey, unless we, you know, don't check our impulse or unless we check our impulses like this is going to happen, fine. But ultimately, I think the message is, is that, again, humanity can't handle too much security, that we will find ways because of our inherent paranoia to create the, these wars, uh, these kind of incessant battles that don't really mean much, that mean but mean something to us, you know, kind of, uh, you know, whatever we created, right? We create the meeting. They mean something to us because we wanted to. And so I guess I'm going back to the same question with the both of you is that is it really possible to create and weave a narrative where kind of everybody buys into it? And let's say even if they do buy into it, that they continue to buy into it after this sort of more or less utopic state, you know, exists or whatever comes to existence. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's a similar story that's familiar for American capitalism is like, you know, uh, people are inherently lazy, idle hands with the Desibles workshop, you know, like, and so what we need is like to people to be disciplined by needing to work for money. Like at like they need insecurity, which is risk of starvation or poverty or whatever. And so then they have to work for money to mm. learn good enough. And then there's like competitive society. They're constantly striving to get more. They're ang anxious about being behind the Joneses in money or houses or cars or whatever. And so they'll keep right. Why do that? It's like because they're they're You can't trust them on their own time. So they need to be like boxed up at work 40 hours a week within and then have a family, which they ties up their other time. And maybe they get a little free time for church or, you know, so like it's like it's a certain idea of what um, societal discipline is required in order for order. I think that's, and I, to, I totally disagree with that picture. <laughs> and, so, and I don't think security, I think security is a wonderful thing. Um, but I, and I mean, and I think economic, political, you know, physical security, economic security is really important. We should have a basic income. It should just be paid through the central bank. Everyone should have, this is in this book, Money for Nothing, Bob Pocket and I defend this view. So everyone should have a basic economic security. They should have more flexibility in what, what, uh, what jobs you take for money and then have more of time to do non-productive uh, things. Now, the key thing is like, you need people to have meaningful activities, right? Uh, and for money and not for money. And that um, is really, really important, right? Um, and um, people need to have a sense that there's things that are worth doing. There's things that are worth living for. There's relationships that are worth having and like mm. ways of being connected with people like in meaningful communal way, like families and communities and um, their cities and um, and their country, you know, like, um, and that involves often like uh, people need, you know, often creative pursuits or a sense of meaning that at least they're contributing to other people. And that sort of, this gets to the meaning point. And then what you need is a society that creates enough security so that people feel freed up from the anxieties to do productive forms of social connection, social contribution, creative activity, you know, stuff that get everybody excited, like, you know, comedy we mentioned or art or movies or like all these cultural products. You know, people doing their own thing, their own art, you know, kind of doing their own service, just people out, you know, help serving people, taking care of people, you know, a lot of meaningful activity there. Like having a society that's structured around people finding meaning and purpose in um, that kind of thing, not just mindless work or getting ahead or avoiding anxiety, but that kind of thing. Like having a conception of society such that that's really central and valued. And I think that is part of a certain ideas of Democrat, you know, you know, a, you know, a, a an inclusive, functional, creative, dynamic, dynamic democ democracy. Oftentimes, capitalist industry is celebrated in this way because it's dynamic and creative. And I think those are wonderful things, and those can be good qualities of, of dynamic aspects of markets. But I, I think they shouldn't just be limited to money making or judged in terms of the money score. You know, these other scores. So I mean, that that should be part of the story is like celebrating people's free creative activity and meaning and social relations and social connection and communal, you know, um, sense of community, which is, you know, often lacking in the States and, 
organizing places and spaces so that that people's lives involve serendipitous you know interactions and mm -hmm. that kind of thing so i mean that security should is is really important and necessary but if it supports that then i don't think it leads to sort of the bad narratives you're talking about then mm -hmm. there's not a need as much to sort of demonize the other or find a bad guy to pin our problems on so we can connect i mean partly it's a desire for connection and belonging that leads you to find a common enemy that we can all rally around mm -hmm. we can find, you know Right. We can we can feel connected with each other because we've got this common common enemy, mm -hmm. right? And that's that's an old dynamic, and I think it's not inevitable, and it can be diffused, um, and it can be fused partly with the stories we tell, but it's also the basic institutional structures that shape the how culture emerges and develops that are really important for making that work. We've got pieces of that already, and it's, it's gradually happening, but it's not it's not going swimmingly at the moment. <laughs> Yeah. So then I would ask, okay, how do we then start to incorporate at least some of the lower level assholes? So if we are creating a more harmonious society, obviously going back to the concept of republicanism, not to be confused with Republicans, uh, how do we then start to incorporate these people who, yeah, who do like war and maybe not necessarily war, maybe that's a little bit too harsh, but who are like more conflict, uh, let's say conflict, what's the word? Um, They're more um, sort of into, yeah, more so in, in line with conflicts, right? Sort of more uh, conflict driven, right? I think that's the best way of putting it. So like, yeah, for these conflict driven people, how do we start to incorporate them because for them they're going to say well you know i don't trust you i need an enemy there are always enemies you're just not paranoid enough you should be more worried etc yeah i mean i don't know if there's a simple answer i mean for one thing just like our own military which has been this dominant force in world affairs for a long time has become very civilized in lots of ways very highly professionalized very restrained in the way it uses force minimizes casualties things like so even for people that are like drawn to those aspects of the way that you know, say uh, military works, often there's civilizing functions within the military. But then, uh, but then the larger populace, like for sort of rhetorically, there's, there's like sports, for example, or conflicting mm -hmm. activities, there's ways of harnessing competitive and conflictive kinds of, of activities that are sort of more for sporting purposes. Um, that kind of, so I mean, it's somebody who's like having enough sort of combat on the football field or whatever, or like, mm -hmm. or their sport and competitive, you know, like, um, you know, if, maybe they're less prone to, I mean, there's, there's room for that for like different personalities to be harnessed in different ways. And I think of this is following Rousseau is like people, human nature is not totally fixed. It's highly sensitive to context. We're making this point about assholes earlier, even they're mm -hmm. highly sensitive. So even the people who are like pretty entrenched in being an asshole, having so like antisocial concept entitlement, even they're like highly context sensitive, but definitely cooperative people, you know, um, are highly context sensitive. So, um, um, so even the ones that sort of maybe have more competitive instincts or combative, so there's, there's ways to find like avenues of, you know, in, engagement with others that, that are, um, that are like that. But I mean, sports is in some way a good example because it's, it's a ways of competitive sports only work because the competition's framed by a conception of the common activity and why it's valuable. And, you know, ideas with sportsmanship come out of that, you know, like a sense of restraint. There's a way of being an asshole by bending those rules and stuff like that. But the sport only works if there's a certain amount of, like a, a common agreement around that, that restrains the competitive forces and dynamics and um, something. Yeah, and so something like that is a model of how politics should, should work. Yeah. And, and, and status seeking in that context is more pro-social. So it's like yeah. in this case, yeah, you have to follow the rules. Like, yeah, you can be the best, but you can't do it by nefarious means. Yeah. 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 Well, right. That's it. I mean, it's a good example. I mean, the scorekeeping part is another point I think comes to Rousseau, but I mean, a lot of running society around the money score like you need a lot of money because you're insecure, but then your status in society is evaluated by how much money you have or you're likely to command or get. 
like that has lots of pathologies attached to it. I think, I think that's that a lot of our problems, some of our big problems stem from that way of scorekeeping. And there's other ways of keeping score um, that aren't as money focused. There's already the new versions of it in, in social media are like people, like there's now a fame score, you know, like if you're like your yeah. platform, your likes and follows and your, your mm -hmm. platform, just even that, like whether or not that connects with money, people are sort of like assign status to that and cater try for that status and they, they get rewarded for that status on the assumption that maybe you could monetize it somehow but it kind of doesn't have to be you know pe people who have lots of money are like hankering to get up to get their likes and follows and you know platform numbers up you know like uh, uh it has its own sort of motivating now i'm not like i don't think that's <laughs> that has its own problems as well sure but, sure. Uh, but the idea is the but the idea is it's the beginning maybe of something you get in sports is which there is a common score and that that can be harnessed like it creates incentives to get a higher score maybe in competition with others but if it can be done in a product a context so there's a productive activity because it's a wonderful game or whatever you know like then that can be a valuable thing and so if you have a society in which there's a lot of different scores in a lot of different contexts then people can be motivated in non-money ways i mean better recognition and tracking of social contribution or creative production or things like that and non-money or you know likes you know right. like other ways of scoring that are ways of making rewards attached to that so people can have status, but more aligned with pro-social, uh, you know, activities. Right. Oh, and as we start to wrap up, I do want to give you a great example. So there's a really good one uh, in, in terms of the so music, the hip hop industry. So people, you know, sometimes don't know, but the reason why hip hop was started, and this was way before, obviously, you know, record sales, whatever, you know, before it became a financial thing, is because literally people were just killing each other. So people were killing each other in the projects, and then a bunch of like what they would call the OGs, a bunch of the older guys were like, hey, you know, instead of like you guys killing each other, why don't you guys like diss each other? Why don't you have these contests where two people stand together? And sometimes it's break dancing too, or you break dance against each other. I well, first it was break dancing technically. So first it was, it was the B boys and break dancing, and then it became battle rapping. But the point is to say these uh, activities were created because the idea is like, yeah, you'll embarrass somebody, but it's better than fucking killing them. So what happened was that the, the folks decided like, oh, okay, cool. Here was a great or or a great way of competing with one another without, even though there's emotional harm, without physically hurting each other. And I think that's particularly what you're kind of likening a lot to, a lot of this too. You're pretty much saying that hey you know we can still have some of these uh kind of more innate aspects and manifestations of them but again in a way that's sort of more helpful and less you know destructive for lack of a better term so yeah that's a good example all right and actually yes uh so i actually wanted to touch on this before we end off True. uh so uh, we're aware that you're uh, writing a memoir about uh, charity work that you did in sumatra uh could you uh tell us about that please yeah, thanks. Uh, so it's over the last 10 years I've gone to, so uh, I'm a surfer and I go to in Indonesia and especially these islands off Sumatra is the best surf zone in the world and like all serious surfers go. And I've gone for like a month every year over for over, I've gone for like 20 years to Indonesia, but to this one place for often a month at a time over the, for over 10 years, I started doing charity projects there with a local guy I stay with in the villages behind the bay where this famous wave is. And then it was partly about, I was at the time I started doing this, I was writing about, a lot about fairness in the global economy and development economics. And I thought I wanted to just try out, like sort of work from the bottom instead of from 20,000 feet, you know, mm. and then and, uh, learned a lot of hard lessons about development from doing like projects in the villages, water tanks or pipes. Or we just did just recently in one village, put in water pipes from a, a spring up to the village houses. Wow. Uh, public toilets. Uh, we got electricity put in for a bunch of villages, but the government did that. We basically catalyze like old-fashioned um 
government uh, infrastructure project. So, uh, but we have lots of crazy stories uh, about that. And I'm writing this memoir that tells um, tells those stories around my relationship with the local guy. Mm. Likening myself to Don Quixote, by the way, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, uh, like a philosopher off to like, you know, do mm. good in the world, you know, whatever. And then, uh, and then the local guy, Damien is his name is my Sancho Panza. So I'm it's likening to that this part. And I'm telling, retelling the stories of my forties interlaced with my love life um, and around themes of um, uh, fortune and misfortune, serendipity um, and stuff like that. And then um, that's telling the story of the projects because it really is about the projects and our relationship, but it's also floating a view about meaning in life that's such that that meaning in life is just the story that the best story you can tell, best true stories, true stories can be about the events in the life of a kind that lets you, gives us a way to accept that that's how our life went or or, or will go. Okay, yeah. it allows us to reconcile ourselves. So that's the I'm defending that picture of meaning in life by telling that, giving the story that helps me reconcile. Like think of my my forties basically at the end of my forties as having gone a certain way. Um, so there's arguments about what works in development um, in connection with my bigger points, arguments about public banking and making taking the idea of money as a public thing seriously, because mm -hmm. I think that's a big solution. But then there's this philosophical argument about meaning in life. And all that's run through the stories uh, about like lots of crazy stories. <laughs> I won't go away because you're a short answer, but. Uh, oh, I love it. That's okay. the project. Awesome. Uh, do, uh, do you have an idea of maybe when it might be coming out? Uh, no idea. I've written I've written uh, almost all of it and gotten really great feedback uh, from it from really good writers. Um, uh, but I haven't settled with a press yet, uh, so it's, I don't have a timeline. Then, um, I mean, I was sort of giving my I, over years. I I've been working on it and kind of waiting for it to just kind of come together as events unfold. And then I finally got the whole thing. Um, um, but I ha I don't have a press yet. I haven't sort of given it to my agent to give it to a press uh, to shop it around and stuff like that. So that would then the timeline's closer. So from there, but at this point, it's still um, still work in progress. Well, when, whenever it is out and you do choose a press, I mean, we'd love to have you back on to talk about. Oh, it. Oh, that'd be great. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Uh, okay, Alan. So final questions for Aaron before we wrap All up. Right. Yes. So if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course buy your books, uh, where can we do that? Yeah, I mean, they're all on Amazon, I think is one way to just think about it. I mean, or a lot of them are, a bunch of them, my pop books are through Doubleday, Penguin Random House. So they have, on their website, they'll have a bunch of the titles, in, um, including the latest one, Money for Nothing. It, it also gets carried on there, shown mm -hmm. on there. Um, and then Twitter is on assholes, because from back in, but uh, those are the main the main ways bookstores awesome. near you <laughs> i don't know <laughs> awesome aaron thank you so much man this, this was such great. an excellent conversation especially from the perspective of psychology which is my main interest i love that oh wonderful thanks so much i really not, had a nice time absolutely nice we'll time. talk to you soon take care Ciao. all right so Everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.